Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy? or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. On most days, you can bank on the news being brought to a grinding halt by a tweet from the president. Today, we discuss all of the problems we aren't solving because we are fixated on his 140 character musings. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode, everybody. We hope to see you in Nashville on August 15th at Red Pepper for our workshop and live podcast. We are so excited and we hope to have the site open to buy tickets by the end of this week. And so everybody can start getting their tickets and their travel plans worked out. We hope to have sort of a meetup the night before, too. So it's going to be really, really fun. 
Please also check out Patreon.com. Thank you to all of our new supporters. We're getting so close to that $3,000 a month goal, which is really where we want to be in order to get Pantsy Politics consistently in the black so that we can produce more content for you. And we're really excited because after we record tonight's episode, Tuesday's episode, which we're recording on Sunday night, we are going on a news fast. And on Thursday, we're going to record an episode that's like, what is our perspective on the news after having been away from it for a few days? Do we consume news differently when we're in it every minute than when we step back from it? So it's going to be interesting. And I hope that you'll become a supporter on Patreon so that you can get that extra episode this month. Yeah, that's our bonus episode available to $15 a month Patreon supporters and above. So if you want that bonus episode, get on over to Patreon and subscribe. So today in the pearls, we're going to talk about the continuing craziness in the White House in the suit. We're going to discuss stuff we're not solving because we're obsessed with the president's tweets. It's a long list. Mm. And in the heels, as always, we'll talk about what's on our mind outside of politics. So bye-bye spicy. Best of luck. Happy trails, Sean Spicer. You know what I was found so gross is our new communications director, Scaramucci, or I think he's called the Mooch. I guess he's already angling for a nickname. Was like, wish him all the best. Hope he makes a ton of money. What? Ugh. You're so gross. That's gross. Everyone in this White House, it just right out there. They just let it all hang out yeah. with what their motives just are, right? Trying to make just, the money. This is what it is. This is a hustle. This is the best hustle. And this, um, so I, I think the observation I read over and over about Spicer is this is what it finally took to, for you to quit. Okay, cool. Cool. <laughs> I think there might have been other reasons for, na- for now, but whatever. I get you. I feel you, Spicer. Well, I have to be honest. I 100% agree with Nancy Pelosi about this. I just don't care. Yeah, because I don't either. Okay, I'm so glad you said that. As I list all the things about Scaramucci that I think are terrible, I could say the same things about Spicer. It, he he wasn't doing a good job. It is impossible for someone to do a good job, but he wasn't doing it. They were sending Sarah Huckabee Sanders out there pretty much every time something hard had to be talked about. It It probably needed to happen. It's too bad, I guess. I don't know. See, I can't even pretend. I just don't care. Did you hear, though, what Scaramucci said about her makeup and hair? And we need to make sure and have the same clothes and hair and makeup people she had on Friday. Did you hear that? No, and that I do care about. So there's a thing that I get. There's a thing that I'll get fired up about. Yeah, I was like, I cannot believe you said that. That is so inappropriate and gross, a comment on her appearance. You know what? That makes me sick. I think she is a lovely woman. I think she is doing her best in a terrible situation. I cannot imagine the choices that she's having to make every day. This is not to say that I'm a big fan, but I am also not a detractor of hers. And I'm glad they gave her the press secretary job since she was taking all of the hard shots every single day. Well, and here's the thing. This dude, I mean, he has like zero communications experience. And while he might have a lot of experience with Trump, here's something I was thinking about today. Is it more important in that job to understand D.C. like Sean Spicer? Or is it more important in that job to understand Donald Trump like Scaramucci? Or does it not matter because neither of those two things are ever going to align? I was about to say, I think in this universe, it just doesn't matter. And that's why, honestly, Nancy Pelosi is so dead on about this. Who cares? Because 
Nothing that's being communicated there is consistent or clear. It often is just not true. And so what difference does it make? I mean, they might as well go full like WWE and turn the press briefing into like a show because that's mm. that's all it is right now. It's ridiculous. The one thing I did read that was interesting is somebody said when they were commenting on his um all his Scaramucci's comments on the Sunday morning shows about the leaks and that he it's binary and he's going to shut the leaks down. He's from the business world. And if people don't stop leaking, they're going to get fired. <laughs> First of all, that response is amazing. Uh, yeah. So we'll check back with us, friend. Check back in. Let's see how, let's know how that goes. But somebody was interesting. They were like, he's basically functioning as a shadow chief of staff and that everybody, even outside the communications department is going to report to him. And I thought that was an interesting observation because this definitely seemed like a Priebus didn't want him and they were fighting and Spicer's Priebus guy and now Spicer's out. So I wonder if this is sort of, um, you know, he likes dueling factions. So maybe he's going to set up the president Trump does. So maybe it's this Scaramucci versus Priebus thing. I don't know. Well, I think that's got to be true. I mean, today the president, we're recording on Sunday, the president tweeted that it's, it's too bad that Republicans don't have his back more. And that's definitely something that, you know, Reince Priebus would have found objectionable. And so his influence seems to have always been pretty low, but diminishing even from that low point. Yeah. I think that this is a let Trump be Trump kind of strategy. You heard Scaramucci on some of the Sunday shows saying, no, we're going to tell him he he can talk about the investigation all he wants to. We can go after uh, Robert Mueller and all the conflicts. Ugh. You know, Kellyanne Conway's out there talking about the <laughs> the Democratic donors that are working for Robert Mueller, which is hilarious when you think about how much money the Trumps have given to Democrats. So uh, I, I don't know. It's. I, here's, I guess here's my overall question, because the next thing you wanted to talk about is Jared Kushner and his failure to disclose all of this money and loans, along with all the meetings that he didn't disclose and the many, many things that he has not disclosed. What is the healthy perspective to have on all of this right now? Because it's not going to stop, mm-hmm. right? We've had since January, so we're seven months into nonstop chaos. And it's not even drip, drip, drip. It's like a fire hydrant breaks every other day or so. I mean, I guess once a week, I think of old Jeb being like, he's a chaos candidate. He'll be a chaos president. Probably once a week, I think about that quote. And if the strategy is to just make us all exhausted, I think that's been pretty effective. I, I try to keep telling myself, you know, the healthy thing, Beth, is to pay attention, but not to live and die over what the latest revelation is, and to trust the process, to trust the Mueller investigation, to trust the Senate Intelligence Committee. I'm disturbed that the Senate Intelligence Committee apparently still has not read the Comey memos. Mm. But I'm trying to just take a breath and realize these things take a long time. At some point, a grown-up will emerge. But, you know, but what did I text you this weekend? I said, what do you think he'd have to do to get Congress to act after the all the I'm going to fire Mueller. I'm going to pardon all the people. I would never have hired Sessions if he told me he was going to recuse. What? No. And my response to you was literally set the White House on fire. And I think that might be where we are. And what's so frustrating about all of that to me, I would have this perspective, even if 
the Russia stuff turns out to be nonsense. Yeah. Because of things like his comments to military personnel that they should call their congressmen and demand things. I mean, he just doesn't get it. I, I, it's just not working out. I've said this before. It's like we hired him. It's not working out. We should just part ways. Word. It's not working out. It's really, really not working out. And I don't understand. And it's exhausting. And I think you feel it because it's like I hear people say like, you know, oh, well, this is it. This is the thing. And I'm like, is it? Because I'm not really sure there's anything he could do to get himself impeached at this point. I really don't think there's anything he could do. I think that they would make more saber rattling if he fired Mueller. But I still don't think Congress would act to remove him from office. I don't know what it would. I really don't know what it would take. And what volume gets you there, right? If it's not going to be any one thing, what volume of things will it take? Will it take a loss in the 2018 elections, you know, maybe that's it. Maybe it's because just going to have to be. that is interesting. I was reading something about like the base is so mad at Congress and not mad at him. What? Yeah, it's crazy. I'm so intrigued by this, but you know what? Hey, if leading is sometimes about being the loudest voice in the room, then I understand why they're reacting like that. And, you know, I think that if particularly with healthcare, they have a lot of reasons to be upset, but I don't know. Well, healthcare, we would love to give you an informed, reasoned perspective on what the Senate is going to vote on this week. But nobody knows. It's really unclear what it's going to be. <laughs> it could be a clean oh, repeal. Man. It could be some version of BCRA one or two. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows what it's going to be, which is a really interesting way to govern. I don't think they're governing. And what, you know what I was kind of upset about now? I think that the I wish the Democrats would come out and be like, OK, guys, here's our plan for fixing Obamacare. Here's our bipartisan. Like if they're not going to if the Republicans don't have any ideas, then why don't we be the party of ideas? Why don't we say, OK, well, this is our idea and we acknowledge that some things aren't working. So these are our these are our these are our thoughts on what we should move forward with. But I don't think that's going to happen either. I think it would be helpful. Like this is the business person in me, I would like to just get some people in a room with a whiteboard. If so, cause we keep hearing everybody agrees that Obamacare needs to be fixed. All right, cool. Let's put up on our whiteboard, the exact parts of the affordable care act that we all agree aren't working. Right. And then let's have another column of things that we don't agree on. Some people think they're not working and some people do. And what facts we need to determine Who's more right about that? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. I, like this seems to me to be so achievable if everybody would just settle down for a second and get into problem solving mode. I'm not sure they have a problem solving mode anymore. They only want to solve their own electoral problems. They don't want to solve actual, go- actual societal problems. But that's a good, that's a good, um, segue anyway. In our next segment, we're going to talk about, um, what societal problems we think are being neglected in the face of Trump's tweets. But first, we have a compliment from the other side from one of our listeners, Leslie. We thought this would be fun to open up the compliment the other side to all of our listeners. So if you have a compliment the other side, just record it in a voice memo on your phone and email it to Sarah at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com and we'll share it on the show. So here is Leslie. Hi, everyone. This is Leslie. And I have a compliment the other side for Rand Paul, Kentucky's own Rand Paul. I wanted to compliment him on his co-sponsorship of a bail reform bill with my senator, Kamala Harris. 
And I love to see anything bipartisan come out of this Congress, but anything related to criminal justice reform makes me especially happy. So I hope uh, all of your listeners will also track the progress of that bill as it moves forward. And so that's my compliment. Good job, Rand. Um, in other news, if you have Republican senators, please call them this week on healthcare. Okay, that's all. Love you all. Bye. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, 
Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. So in the hills today, we are talking about all the things not getting solved while everyone's obsessed with Donald Trump's tweets and Congress just refused to act on anything. So my, I don't know what your number one thing is, Beth, but my number one thing that I'm very, very, very concerned about that doesn't seem to be getting any attention except for don't get Medicaid, it would hurt this, is the opioid crisis. Drug overdoses are now the number one cause of death for Americans under the age of 50. There's all these terrifying stories. Did you see this story about the 10-year-old who overdosed in Miami and they have no idea how he got exposed to the heroin and fentanyl mix? He just like went to the pool and walked home and then died on his doorstep of a drug overdose. Yeah. And this has happened in, I was listening to um, a couple of podcasts on this topic and they were talking about how bad it's gotten in um, Australia. Australia's had a very, a couple of high profile cases. Because now fentanyl is so potent and you can get it shipped, you can get on the dark web and get it shipped from anywhere. And it's just, there's no regulation. There's no, I mean, there is regulation. It's all legal, but there's just really such a huge problem. So many places don't have the capacity to deal with it. And it's just so scary to me. I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You live in Northern Kentucky where there it's like ground zero. It is ground zero, I guess, because of our proximity to the interstate highway system. And I was with someone the other day when she got news that a loved one had passed away from an overdose. And we were talking about how we don't know anyone at this point who hasn't been personally impacted by heroin. Mm. And that's just kind of where we are. It crosses demographics and... It's becoming too, everyone in Northern Kentucky knows what Narcan is, which I guess is a good thing, but it also is a totally depressing thing. And now we're having these conversations about whether people are worth saving, whether we should continue to use Narcan over and over on people. Mm. It's, it's just such a sad commentary on how we don't know what to do with this problem. And no one wants to acknowledge, I think, that you have to get pretty deep in terms of like our whole culture to solve drug issues. There is a reason that people from all walks of life are saying, I think I'll try that, even in the face of much better education than Mm -hmm. We've had on a lot of topics that this is going to kill you, right? Yeah, I was telling somebody the other day that when I worked for a congressman my first summer after law school, for Congressman Ben Chandler, who's no longer um, serving, and I did a big briefing book on um, meth, because meth was the big scary drug right then. And I remember, you know, it was going to be, it was going to just wipe us all out. It was going to be this, just this terrible boogeyman. And there's a really great documentary on Netflix. I can't remember the name, but I'll try to find it. I think it's the house we all live in. It's something like that. It's about the drug epidemic. And it was historical, had a really interesting historical perspective because it was like, you know, we used 
pot to scare people. We used uh, crack cocaine that was killing everybody. We used that. And it's like we have finally created a drug boogeyman worthy of our fear. Like uh, the opiate and fentanyl in particular um, is so scary and the 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 availability and the paths the easy paths that people that it can get to people through the internet and you know i know that a big issue with northern kentucky is because of the interstate runs through there but you know i just isn't this what sort of our big thinkers our leaders are supposed to do they're supposed to come out and say okay we have this big problem and we need a big solution. We need all the breast brain power. We need a, you know, we need the moonshot. Well, we don't, we need the opiate moonshot real bad. We really do. And I don't expect government to solve this crisis. I do expect our leaders to be talking about it constantly and working with people who are finding programs that are effective and putting funding behind research. And figuring and, you know, I I expect them to work on it. I think it will take all of us because I do think there are some pretty deep issues about why are we avoiding reality? That's Mm -hmm. that's what this is, right? Why do we so badly want to avoid reality? That's not a problem that government alone can solve. But government can do a lot here. And you're right. It just is neglected constantly, except for. The people who will beat the drum of, listen, if you if you change this funding, it's going to hurt our efforts to combat this in my state. Well, and I think that, you know, I think the reason primarily right now, because we're at we're um, we're like basically at triage stage because it is affecting our law enforcement in such a massive way. I mean, I kind of feel like it's not a market problem. Like government is going to have to be the first lines to sort of deal with this because it's so impacting our law enforcement. I mean, do you read the story about the the police officer who brushed it off his shoulder and then passed out from an overdose just by barely touching some fentanyl? It's just so what they're up against. And the fact that they have nowhere near the resources they need is just so scary. Well, it's impacting our schools, too. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know what it's not impacting. Yeah, seriously. There are employers in northern Kentucky who have been publicly weighing whether or not to continue to administer drug tests because they can't find enough workers who are clean consistently. I mean, I mean, this is there is nothing that is untouched at this point by this problem. And that's what's so frustrating. That's why I wanted to talk about this problem first, because that's the one that like when I saw that tweet that was like Donald Trump has tweeted about CNN 40 times. Donald Trump has tweeted about his own election results 140 times. And he's mentioned the word opiate once. Like, that's what's so infuriating. We have this crisis it was like the other day they were talking about like it's more people than have died in vietnam at this point it's more people that died at the peak of the aids crisis and like it's just this ravaging fire that is just raging seemingly without any sort of attention from the federal government it's mind-boggling and we have to and i'm worried that my comment earlier may have gone down this road so i want to be sure to correct it you know We have to get past the idea that there is a weakness or a moral failing for people who get Mm -hmm. into this circumstance, because in some cases we are trying to avoid reality. In other cases, this is a progression of overprescription 
Mm-hmm. Right? Somebody starts with a back problem. dosage because they knew. Remember, the companies knew. So, so people are entrapped by this addiction for all kinds of reasons. And I think that's another thing that we've got to get right with. Like, this is a problem worth solving because these are our fellow human beings. Yeah. And that's the thing. That's, I mean, it's so crazy that you brought that up about the Narcan because I was talking to my friend, Heather, whose mother lives in Northern Kentucky. And she was like, yeah, it's like up there, there's this conversation of like, well, should we save people? Do they deserve to be saved? And I'm like, is that really a conversation that we're having as human beings? Do, does somebody deserve to be saved? Like, we really want to start getting into this. Okay. Uh, uh. Well, the discussion to provide the other perspective and, you know, I, I disagree with this perspective, which is probably obvious, but I don't want to be too callous about the people asking that question. They're, they're saying, you know, if someone is saved by Narcam four times, mm. five times, what are we saying to them and to people around them about the risks here? Yeah. That's is true. this, you know, and, and so it's not a, it's not an inhumane question. It's hard, right? It's just yeah. really hard. Yeah. So what do you think is the un- huge issue that we're neglecting because we're obsessed with tweets? Well, somewhat related to what we were just talking about and you and I have, discussed this in different contexts before, but I think caregiving and sort of the new reality around death Mm. are subjects that we're really neglecting. And I think caregiving is a little bit like addiction in that it affects every aspect of our society. You know, how, how are kids uh, receiving enough care when a even if you have a, a household that is functioning at a very high level, you introduce a really ill parent into a situation where there are young children and you have people in their 30s, 40s, early 50s trying to juggle both ends of the spectrum. That's a lot. And it affects people's ability to work kind of a regular job and regular schedule. I think there is just so much to figuring out how we want to take care of people who can't take care of themselves, adults with developmental disabilities who can't live independently. You know, this gets into mental health as well. Yeah. I just think we're at a complete loss on how to tackle this problem by saying, that's your personal business. Go figure it out. Yeah. I mean, I think that we just, we, we, it wasn't even personal business. It was just like, Hey, women, you do it. Cool. Okay, great. We're all going to move on with our lives now. Um, and that's about a 70 year old, 90 year old <laughs> response right, yeah. to a very yeah. modern problem. Yeah. I mean, I think it was definitely like, well, the women will do it. It'll be fine. Um, and so, and I think that, you know, for me, what's so important is that women at this point are, you know, going to college in higher numbers, graduating in higher numbers. So you have a massive amount of our sort of human capital, innovation capital, just not being included in the economic pie, like because of these caregiving um, sort of canyons and because people are just not able to reach their economic potential because they're put in situations in which they can't either continue to work, they can't be promoted, they can't go for jobs. I mean, it's complicated. It's not just simply about caregiving, but I think caregiving is a huge part of it. And I think that, the, you know, it's not just that we 
expect women to pick up the caregiving load, but it's like, we don't even value caregiving when we're paying people to do it. Like we don't pay them very much. It's, you know, it's work that's not valued, even though it's going to become more and more important. And fun fact, robots can't do it. So, (laughs) um, I think that it's going to become even more and more important and even more important to our economic sort of breakdown and our, the economic pie. And so I, yeah, I totally agree. I think it, and we're just not, and I think we're just at this really tough position because work is changing so dramatically and it's almost like, well, which one are we going to try to figure out first? You know, right? what, what is work going to look like or what is caregiving going to look like? That's what's so hard. Well, and also, can we find ways to approach death a little differently that change our perspective on caregiving to any yeah. extent? You know, we've talked before about hospice care. One of our um, listeners directed us to a series of really beautiful tweets about the way we talk about fighting cancer and how that's not always what needs to be done. I had a conversation, a kind of heartbreaking conversation with my dad this afternoon. I found out that my great aunt had a pretty severe stroke and they have elected not to do anything. Right. And so it's just kind of a matter of time now and we're waiting. And my reaction of course is really sad, but my dad and I were having this conversation that she's 87. She has had a remarkable life. Uh, she had polio as a young child and has done more with her life than anyone ever would have guessed. She adored her husband. They were best friends. He passed a few years ago and she's really kind of lived exactly the way that she has wanted to live, which I hope people can say about all of us, you know, Mm -hmm. at at the end of things. And so I wish that our, and this is kind of what I mean about the reality of death. I wish that we could culturally start to change our ritual around death to be more celebratory of situations like this and, and even truly horrible before their time losses as well. I think that by, you know, everything we do around death is so final. It's so sad. It's long and drawn out. I mean, where we live in Kentucky, the traditions are these long periods of visitation, right? Families are standing for hours as people come in and, and pay their respects and, There's nothing really, there's not really any art around it except for flowers. You know, it's just, it's as sad as humanly possible. And I wish we could work on that because I think that would really powerfully start to change a lot of our decisions. I think it would change our health decisions. I think it would change our caregiving decisions. And I really, that is a soapbox of mine. I hate, and I, you know, I've never been diagnosed with cancer. Thank God. And but I would fight. So the only thing I would fight is all that bullshit they put on cancer survivors and cancer diagnosis shoulders, all this stuff about, you know, what if I don't want to be brave? What if I don't want to be the, you know, the vision of bravery and courage? What if I just want to be sad or pissed off or just want to be sick? Like, what if I just want to feel like that? Like, it's just, it doesn't seem to me that we allow a lot of space for nuance or complexity once people are diagnosed with cancer. And it's incredibly unfair and it's incredibly limiting. And just, I think I I react that way because that's sort of, to me, there are um, equivalent sort of, or um, equivalencies between that and what we do to mothers, which is just just no, there's no allowance for weakness or mistakes or 
anger or frustration. It's just, you know, be put on that brave face all the time. It's so frustrating. I don't know why we do that to people. Brave looks like a lot of different things, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think acknowledging that. And I think the, you know, what we're coming around to as we're having this conversation circles right back to that addiction question. We are just suffering so needlessly from unmeetable expectations of ourselves and each other. Yeah. So I, another big thing that, um, let's see if I can make this as big as humanly possible. I think an issue we're not dealing with is, oh, I don't know. The fact that we no longer live in an industrial age and now we live in a technological age and nobody seems to want to accept that. And all our institutions are built on a system under which no one functions anymore. I think like that stuff Elon Musk was saying about like, we're not paying attention to artificial intelligence. It's going to be too late. They're going to, computers are going to take over now. Do I believe every word of that? No, but like, it's still scary that somebody that dude that like lives, breathes that area of, of sort of our economy and the planet and like all the stuff with Amazon getting bigger and bigger and automation and artificial intelligence taking our jobs. I just think that there's just, it changes more and more and more. And we just have like, it's like the wild west. We have no really sort of conception of the impact of so many of these technologies, the ones we already have, much less that how different it'll be in five years. Man, it really freaks me out. We kind of need to make some choices about what kind of future society we want, right? Because our ability to have things doesn't mean we should have them. Mm. But I don't, so, I mean, is that even, I don't even know if a society is capable of saying just because we can't have this doesn't mean we should. Like, I'm just not sure if human beings are even capable of that on a well, societal we, level. That's why we haven't solved nuclear pl- proliferation, right? Mm-hmm. We, we can have that. We shouldn't have it. And we keep saying probably we shouldn't have this, but we haven't destroyed that capability yet. When you said that robots can't do caretaking yet, I thought to myself, maybe they can at some point, but they shouldn't. Yeah. They shouldn't because there's so much more to caregiving. It it reminds me there was this, um, I can't remember the philosopher who said it, but I heard this quote this morning that, you know, we aren't human beings having spiritual experiences. We're spiritual beings having human experiences. Yeah. I've and that, that might not before. resonate, but, you know, that might not resonate with everyone, but I think there is something to whatever your worldview, there is something to the connection between people that I don't think can be replicated by a robot, nor nor should it. Why would we want that? One of our listeners sent us a really good uh, podcast after the um, discussion on climate change. It's the Liturgist podcast, and they had a conversation with a guy who made a documentary about, they call it the blue, I think it's called the blue dot effect. It's when astronauts get up into space and they have very spiritual experiences looking back on planet earth and sort of, they just realize how small we are, how every human life is so interconnected by our presence together on this planet. And in this, and in this um, sort of the universe, just, you know, to realize how vast the universe is and how small our little planet and how small each life on that planet is. And it's like, I feel like so many of these problems. And I've said this before about America in particular, that we just fight it so hard. We don't want to be interconnected. We don't want to acknowledge that everything is connected. We don't want to acknowledge that we're not just all individuals on our own little island pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Like we just have, we struggle so hard with that. And I think that, you know, our, when technology offers increasing um, ways for us to be 
independent, but at the cost of disconnection, we just grab and grab and grab and grab and grab without the thought of like, hey, maybe we're not supposed to be disconnected. Maybe we're not all supposed to live in our own little apartments on, you know, in vast apartment complexes and not really know anyone around us. So I don't know. I just, woof. Well, it relates to where I was going to go next with it, which is infrastructure. And we've had this conversation before too, but when I think about what can we accomplish versus what should we accomplish, I don't care about a self-driving car for myself ever. Take my oh, car I do, away. But you know why? Because I want my 16-year-old in a self-driving car. I don't want him no, driving. I want all of us in mass transit. Oh, I don't know. That's fine. Yeah. You know, and if, and if that's self-driving at some point, okay, I guess. I still hope that there's some... Uh, allowance for human judgment and, you know, <laughs> making sure that we, we don't have, um, the ability to kill each other by hacking into mass transit systems and that kind of thing any more than we already do. But I think about how it, this is another moment where we need to think about what are the goals of innovation? This billion dollar infrastructure package from the president that I think is probably never going to come. And Glenn Thrush had an interesting piece about that, that we can put in the show notes uh, this weekend. What is the point of doing more blacktop? Yeah. I mean, you know, like what are, what are we trying to do here? Yeah. That's such a good point. Like why would we want like all these interstate highway systems that chopped up neighborhoods and pollute the cities do we really want to upgrade those? Like, is that what we want to do? Do we want to just keep paving and building bigger interstates and bigger overpasses and um, upkeeping things that were designed in the 60s specifically to tear apart certain neighborhoods? Like, do we want to keep that up? I don't know if we do. If you're a person who's been chanting drill, baby, drill for 10 years or so, and what you meant behind that was energy and independence, then isn't the solution to that to find ways to transport ourselves from here to there without relying on oil at all, mm-hmm. not foreign oil, but oil at all. Right. I mean, and, and that has nothing to do with climate change. It's just, if, you know, again, if you're a drill baby drill person, like let's, let's solve that problem then instead of investing billions of dollars to upgrade systems that could very well be outdated by our technology. Yeah, but Drill Baby Drill is not just about energy independence. Drill Baby Drill is about that, what I was talking about. It's the, because I can have it, I want it. And because I can have oil, I deserve it all, and I should have it all, and I'm entitled to it. You know, I think that that, it's not just about energy independence. I think there is this, there is a sort of undercurrent of, because I can, I must Yeah. So I guess if you're there, then we are nothing but consumers. Yeah. Yeah. And don't you feel like that sometimes when you read things about um, sort of the way Congress approaches problems and the way people write about societal problems? It does feel like that. It feels like the only role we have to play in our lives is as consumers. Dang, I never thought about that until you just said it. But like, I feel like so often when we talk about technology and we talk about even the drug crisis and we talk about all these things, the only thing that matters is what we, our role as consumers. And that is disturbing. That is disturbing. It's, it's, I think at the root of a lot of our profound and collective unhappiness in this country yeah, so right now. True. So true. So what other, are there any other big issues you think we're neglecting? Well, we asked this question on Patreon. So another benefit of being a supporter of fancy politics is that sometimes we'll say, here's what we're going to talk about on Tuesday. Let us know your thoughts in advance. And so we had a few good responses. Megan wanted to talk about education inequality 
because she said your zip code should not determine the quality of education that you get. And I think that I think education in general, to your point, Sarah, about reckoning with the fact that we're post-industrial and we've not changed our systems to align with that is really important. Well, and that one to me is like so many of these feel so big and so overwhelming, but like that is not hard. That is the Supreme Court case with a really bad decision that said we have no constitutional right to an education. And so it can be completely and totally unequal based on your zip code. So that is maybe not the easy, maybe not a quick fix, but most certainly we know where to start with that one. And I would love to see that case overturned. But what's the standard for that? How do you know that education is equalized? Is that about resource allocation? Is that, you know, is that about test scores? Like, this is the hard thing about education. People, reasonable people can disagree on what makes for a quality education. Because to me, it's not when when I say you have a constitutional right to an education, we're not talking a constitutional right to everyone having the same education. We're having talking about a constitutional right to a bare minimum in which many, 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 many areas of this country would not fall. And so I think that that, you know, as Americans, we should be able to get together and say, this is the bare minimum we expect from our public education system. And we will allocate resources accordingly until everybody is there. And just because, you know, when, when one zip code over, they're building their, you know, replacing a five-year-old gymnasium with a brand new gymnasium. Okay, well, that's not a u- good use of resources. So we're going to spend some of this money over here where the school is not beating our, meeting our bare minimum standards. It would be good to have that conversation in light of what we think a K-12 education is supposed to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because it could, you know, it could be, you don't want it equal because some areas would be better served with a vocational school and some areas would be, but you know what I mean? So... Well, and I would, I mean, I think right now there's a serious debate to be had about whether a person should be employable at the end of a K-12 education or not. We mm-hmm. have basically decided that for the vast majority of jobs in a service economy, you are not employable without a bachelor's degree. That's so and that true. is ridiculous. And I, I do think that a bare minimum education should result in a person being able to get a decent job at the end of the 12th grade. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, you know, but like, where does that fit in, in the, you know, technological age? Should there be like basic coding? Cause I feel like if you put coding and like you put, you know, if you put that in as like, we want everyone to graduate with this basic use in coding, then yeah, you probably could graduate. If you, if with, you know, basic skills on that and go out and get a, you know, a decent job. You don't have to code the next Facebook to make a living in coding. Well, so, or <laughs> the, the total other way to attack it would be to really focus on soft skills because hard skills are always trainable. Any employer is going to have to do some amount of hard skill training, but soft skills, are you adaptable? You know, are you personable? Can you communicate well, both verbally and writing. Mm -hmm. Those are so much harder to teach, especially the older people get. And so do we want our K-12 education to produce people who have some determination and some grit and some stick to itness and problem solving skills, you know, or do we want them to 
Because what I don't want, I love the idea of coding and things like that being introduced in high school. And I think there's a way to, to do ands with this instead of ors. But I would hate for us to be forcing people at 15 to know their path in life to the point that they feel like they have to really get this narrow group of skills to graduate. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's true. And I, th- but I think also, you know, I was just thinking about this conversation based on what we were, the observation we just made. And I think that's what people graduate as after a K-12 education to be consumers. That's what we train. That's, that's what you're yeah, qualified right. to be after a high school, after a high school graduate, as a high school graduate is a consumer. And so we say, okay, well, good. You've graduated. Now you're able to join our society as a consumer. So now we'd like you to go to college and consume and sign up on, for all this debt and, um, become a college graduate so you can make more and more money and consume and consume and consume. Which Man, means that's depressing. That I'm so that- depressed right now. That means you are hardwired for a life of scarcity and anxiety being your prevailing feelings, right? Well, and that's the other thing. Like when you say like, why do like if we're talking about like we've moved, kind of moved past problems we have and how we want to solve and like where do we want to just start over? Why do we have can we just start over with the idea of like. There is a path for you through life. Like there is a career path. It's so silly. We really have to let go of that. Like, especially in the world we live in now, like I've sort of, my, my eight year old can tell you about a multi-potentialite because (laughs) (laughs) I love that Ted talk Uh, because I've showed him that Ted talk and I'm like, don't listen to people when they tell you, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's like, you have to pick one thing. You don't have to pick one thing. If you want to get an associate's degree in graphic design, because you're interested in it when you're 18 and you can do it for free. And then you decide, I don't like this. I want to do something else. Do something else. Like, or mix it up or go work. Like, I don't, you know, I just, I, I wrote a HuffPost piece when I was a blogger and we'll put it in the show notes called, um, that went pretty viral called maybe my, my kid, maybe my kids won't go to college. I can't remember the exact title. When I was basically like, you know, I feel no drive for my children to graduate from high school and go immediately into some fancy four year university, even though I, absolutely adored my college experience. And I hope that they have a great experience like that at some point. But as far as like graduating from high school and going right to college, and I think that's the only path to success. And that's what I'm going to tell them they have to do if they want to be successful in the world. Hell no. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin. I take a probiotic. And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off.
want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze. And its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. So my husband and I have this recurring talk where I come home from work one day and I have a total breakdown and I say, I don't think I want to do this anymore. And here's what I think I want to do. And a couple of times ago, when we had that conversation, he said, okay, so you make another change because I've already made one, right? I practice law. I decided to stop practicing law and work on the administration side of a law firm and I've had a billion ideas since then that we've discussed and we're doing this podcast, which sounds insane to people who don't listen to podcasts, right? When you <laughs> say I'm spending all this life energy on a podcast, they're like a blog. No. Um, and so, so he said to me, and this was such a crystallizing moment for me. He said, what if you make another change and that's not the thing? And then you want to make another change. And that's not the thing. What if you're never really satisfied with one thing? And it was so freeing to realize, like, what if I'm not? Yeah. That's well, you okay. Are. Temporarily. That's yeah. Yeah. That's fine to be just satisfied <laughs> totally for a little fine. while and then no longer satisfied with that thing. That's Hooray. totally and completely acceptable. It's just so funny, though, because if you were trying... It's one, one shift in that and everything changes. If you said... Nobody says... Oh, well, you know, I'm not satisfied. I'm not satisfied with this job. I want the next best job up the rung. I want to climb the rung, right? I want to be promoted. I want to be promoted. I want to be promoted. That's totally fine. Everybody's fine with that. That doesn't mean you're not satisfied, right? That means you're, you're driven. That's your, means you're ambitious because that's the framework in which we've decided that's acceptable behavior to change jobs. But if you're doing something different and you're saying, no, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to shift. 
And, you know, sort of like when my, I was probably 30 or so and I, and I, and it's, it's so sad because I always had the most fantastic boss bosses. And my husband looked at me and said, you don't like having bosses and that's okay. And I thought, Oh, it is. I think part of it as a woman was like, Oh yeah, that is okay. I cannot have a boss, you know? And as we're like sort of having these conversations to me, it's like, you know, I hate to throw baby boomers under the bus, but I'm definitely going to do that right now. I just think that, you know, the formulation, all these problems, it's almost like, you know, sort of if you scratch the surface down a little bit, I just think that sort of the the narrative we had as a society of what was important and what makes people happy and what we should all be striving for was wrong. But, you know, <laughs> I think baby boomers... I think that's right. And I think baby boomers have suffered because of that, too. And I think Generation X is suffering enormously because of that. There was a piece floating around on Facebook last week about, um, and I'll, I'll find it and put it in the show notes, about how if you look at valedictorians, the track record isn't yes. great after high school. That was in and that it, thing about birth order, about how Middleson's, that's the one I read it in. They were talking about how firstborns are great, but they're also a lot likely to be valedictorians. And those people aren't that success, quote unquote, successful or happy. Well, so it really stuck with me because I was a valedictorian in my so high was school. I. And the piece pointed out that you get to be the valedictorian mm-hmm. because you're good at compliance. Yep. And compliance doesn't serve you at all oh. post-graduation. And I do feel like most of my life after getting out of law school has been about unlearning the things that made me really successful in school in order to be happy. And it's much less now about compliance. And my definition of success has nothing to do with the amount of money I make or the title that I have or how people view me now. It is about clarity on my personal values and the alignment of my daily circumstances with those personal values. It's so true. And I think that I think about that a lot as a parent, too. You know, I had a conversation with my friend and she was talking about, oh, well, we're teaching this like I forgot what it's called. It's like some parenting technique. It's like um, one request, first time request, something like your parent, your children, do what you do, do what you say the very first time. Like that's the goal of the parenting approach or something. And I thought, you know. Not so yeah. much. <laughs> yeah. First of all, my children never, ever do what I do say the first time I tell them to do it. So let me just say that clearly. But I told my friend, I was like, you know, that doesn't bother me because obedience is not a characteristic I look for in partners or friends or coworkers. And it's not something I particularly want to instill in my children at all cost. It's not that I don't, you know, respect is incredibly important to me. Now, respect is something we talk about a lot in my house, but obedience at all costs, you know, good. Like I always tell Nicholas, like, I'm not looking to raise good little soldiers. It's just not what I'm into. Like, that's not what I, you know, my kid, look, Griffin, my eight year old strong. He is, you can tell he lives with two lawyers. He it's starting, you know, my parent, my mom always said I did this. I would argue back and she'd be like, wait, no, I'm right. I know I'm right. I can't argue back with what you just said, but I'm definitely right in this scenario. (laughs) And I'm already getting it back. Like the other day he said something, I was like, I think my response was because I said so, like, cause I just didn't have a good response. Cause he'd like out argued me, but you know what? That's what I want him to do. I want Absolutely. him to do that, you know? And so it's not, it's not that it's not frustrating in the, in the moment, but you know, I don't, that, why do we teach kids that? Why do we teach kids in school and in parenting that like obedience and lining up, you know, and keeping your mouth shut as you walk in a silent line down the hall is like the most important thing. 
Well, that feeds into criminal justice, which is something that Katie brought up and that Leslie is going to mention in the compliment the other side. But the sense that strict compliance is leading us down some really scary roads in the way we treat people. And that's getting worse under Attorney General Sessions, who has decided to push back on uh, the the holder all the good thing, all the, the all the minuscule little progress bipartisan progress we eked out in the obama era and he's like nah let's not do that anymore exactly civil asset for- forfeiture that is that is super solvable right away too right because that's one where legislators can just get together and change this law we can stop saying hey we're going to take money from people who haven't even been charged with a crime yet because we think they might be criminals we can stop doing that so we're going to stop doing that starting today. Um, Aaron pointed out that inefficient military spending. That's another. We don't have to get real deep and philosophical to start saying, hey, let's do this a little better. I think about that all the time. This is such a missed opportunity from the Trump administration, because I do think he could have brought in people with really good skills from all kinds of walks of life, the private sector, the public sector, the nonprofit sector to just come in and say, let's just do all this better. Let's do it with more efficiency or let's do it with more compassion or whatever the defining characteristic for each administrative agency needs to be. You could drive things more toward that goal and they just, you know, are blowing it there. Well, and I think with I will say, though, just get back to criminal justice. I do think this is an issue that there are some easy fixes, but we are going to have to have a real philosophical conversation as a society about the role of punishment because we are not going to put a dent in our, in our prison population by just dealing with nonviolent offenders. It just is not going to get us there. We're going to have to decide if we believe that someone who rapes or murders or rapes and murders a child or whatever the case may be, the, you know, the heinous crime committed means that we just want to put them in prison for the rest of their life as punishment. If our only goal is to make someone miserable and to punish them. I mean, I think that we really are going to have to talk about that. I don't think that, you know, other societies don't do that. Other societies don't punish for punishment's sake. So I think that that's going to be, uh, sort of what do we want our society to look like conversation coming our way soon too. And our, we're already having it for sure. I worked a music festival this weekend that was a community event and there were prisoners from the local jail who came to help clean up both before and after the event. And I was a volunteer coordinator for this event. So I'm walking around the whole time just as like the thank you lady, right? Every person I see in one of my volunteer shirts, I'm like, thank you so much for being here. And so as these prisoners are cleaning up, every time I saw one of them, I tried to look the person right in the eye and say, thank you so much for doing this with us. We really appreciate it. And not one of them responded in any way. And I understand that. And it was it was challenging for me to know how to handle that situation. But it also felt impossible to not say thank you because these are people helping with a task. Right. That is a a wonderful thing to do for a community. And I thought to myself for the, you know, hundredth time, what do we expect when we incarcerate people? What mm-hmm. do we expect to happen? Yeah. Yep. So, uh, Katie also, I, I want to mention this. I know that we're going a little long. Sorry, Nicholas, <laughs> everyone. Um, but 
Katie mentioned this article from the New York Times about how foster care as punishment has become the new Jane Crow situation. Man, that article got me so fired up. It's that is something that we're going to have to reckon with. And I think that folds into caregiving as well. Yeah. What what are we trying to do here? Oh, maybe that's the that's this. I think that's the that's a perfect line to end this conversation on these big problems that we need to solve. What are we trying to do here? Well, and to relate it back to the president and his tweets, you know, it's not his fault that we haven't solved these problems. We he's going to be him. I am at the point now I tried when he was elected to say, okay, maybe it won't be so bad. It's bad. It's it's so bad. And it's not going to get better. Mm -mm. So I kind of want to say collectively, well, that's really bad and it's embarrassing. And we're going to keep the pressure and accountability on our representatives to deal with it. And at the same time, we're going to we're going to keep marching forward on these other issues. We're not going to be paralyzed by it. Okay, we're not going to be paralyzed by it. Sounds good. All right. Up next in the heels, we'll be talking about what's on our minds outside of politics. What's on your mind this week, Beth? Only this music festival. (laughs) Because it was a very intense uh, experience. It was very good. So my Leadership Northern Kentucky class is over, but every class in the program does a project. And so our project, um, our class was all about this book called The Flower Man, where um, a a gentleman goes into a neighborhood. There are no words in the book. It's just a picture book. He goes into it. It's, it's very cool. It's black and white. And he shows up with a single flower and it's about how the whole neighborhood starts to turn to color because of this one flower. And so our goal was to do something, um, along that line of thinking. So there's a community in Northern Kentucky called Latonia that doesn't get a lot of funding. It hasn't had a lot of um, economic development recently, even as other parts of Northern Kentucky really have. So we decided to hold a music festival there. We used local businesses for everything related to the music festival. Um, we worked with local residents. The president of our class did an amazing job Way to go, Billy. She spent a bunch of time with the business council there and the, and the community council and local entrepreneurs. And it was very much the flower man playing out. Like you could just see even before the festival started all of the impacts of planting that seed. And so we had the festival. It was a long, hot day. I was there from 8 a.m. until slightly before midnight. I got sunburned. I was so mad at myself for getting sunburned. Um, but anyway, it was a wonderful event. Thousands of people showed up. Um, hopefully we're going to have some good proceeds to put back into that community. So that's where my head has been. That's awesome. I'm very proud of your work in um, leadership in Northern Kentucky. Good Thanks. job, Beth. You're welcome. What's going on with you? Uh, I learned to water ski today and I'm really proud of myself. Oh, I'm proud of you too. That's exciting. Um, I tried it before and I don't want to throw my cousin under the bus, but he was doing it wrong. Like he was accelerating the boat too fast. Now that I've had somebody do it properly, I really understand what was happening before. Um, look, I did not get up on the first time, which means that I had a lot of water 
going a lot of places. It's fine. I survived. But I did get up eventually, and um, I'm just really proud of myself. It feels, my friend Ashley put it this way. I thought that was such a great way to put it. She said, I love at our age um, accomplishing new things or having new, totally new experiences, and I t- feel 300% the same way. So I just thought it was really, I felt like really baller about four days um, before my 36th birthday. Y'all, my birthday is the Friday, so everybody get super prepared to celebrate. And I'll be 36, and I just thought, this is so great. I did something new, um, something that I've wanted to try. I got up. I got to go around. It was it was super fun. And we had a great weekend this week. We were living the lake life, um, so it was super fun. And I didn't lose an iPhone in the lake, so always uh, always means the weekend was an extra big success. <laughs> that is a big accomplishment. <laughs> Since I'm still paying on the one at the bottom of Kentucky Lake from earlier this uh, month. Uh, well, I think that is awesome. I totally agree with you about how it's almost more fun to learn new things now than it's ever been at any point in life. And I hope that continues. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, and she was saying that she, she was like, well, I used to feel this way about that. I wanted to jump out of an airplane, but now I think I've gotten too old. I'm like, no, no, no. You do the George HW Bush plan. You wait till you're like 85 and you lived your life. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to go jump out of an airplane. I'm totally, totally doing that. I have these moments occasionally when, despite all the things that stink about getting older, I get kind of excited about the perspective that you have with every passing year and the way that you seem to view relationships. Like I look at my dad sometimes and I think there's a richness about the way he views relationships that I have watched kind of transform since I was younger. And I don't know, it makes me sort of excited about that. Yeah, I think I'm all about getting old. I think it's awesome. All right. Well, on that super positive note, <laughs> um, I think it was positive. We just had an exceptionally positive, nuanced look at aging. So I think that is positive. Well, um, it's something that the world needs, right? There's not yeah, enough of that going around. That's right. <laughs> As always, thank you for joining us for another episode. Thank you to our executive producers, my husband, Nicholas, Tracy, Leslie, and Sabrina. You can follow us on social media. Leave us a review on the Apple uh, uh, podcast app. And until next week, keep it nuanced, y'all.